Well, good morning once again. It is good to come to the pulpit after hearing a song like that. How great is our reward that was purchased by the Son of God. And that's who we are here to adore and worship and learn about this morning. As you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark 7. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 13 together here before I begin. Mark writes, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, that is Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to or set up and establish the tradition of men. And he said to them. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Thus nullifying or making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Well, when you come back to verse one, you notice that Jesus had, had left a crowd of sick people after healing them. And now we see in chapter seven that the Pharisees and scribes had found him again. They're back. And you can also see that their opposition to him is cranking up in this text. And in this passage, we we begin to find a a direct and a sharp confrontation taking place. And you can almost feel the tension here between Jesus and these religious leaders of Israel. It's building. And what we need to keep in mind is this tension will continue to build from this point on in the Gospel of Mark. And this whole confrontation It begins here. It begins in this way. I'm going to give you an outline. It begins like this. It begins with a a thinly veiled question from the Pharisees and scribes. And this question was in reality an implicating accusation, as you can see in verses 1 to 5. Then in response to this, Jesus comes back to them with a condemning revelation in verses 6 to 8. And then Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on to respond further with an incriminating illustration in verses 9 to 13. So we have an implicating accusation, a condemning revelation, and an incriminating illustration all taking place in the conflict in which we are finding ourselves this morning in Mark 7. 
The whole thing starts off with the Pharisees and scribes doing what they do best, seeking to find a way to criticize Jesus, the Son of God. They're there investigating and scrutinizing his every move. I mean, this is kind of creepy when you think about it. They're just standing in the background watching what's going on with the disciples, waiting and kind of creeping around, looking for a way to condemn Jesus by the actions of his disciples. They want to malign him, and and they want to do that because Jesus is a threat to them. The Holy Son of God and his very presence and his teaching threaten to expose them, to expose them for what they truly are, which is religious hypocrites. Now, we were reminded of this last time I preached from Mark in Mark 3, and there we saw the heart's posture and the hypocrisy of the Pharisees very clearly. Let's go back there again, though, and read that in Mark 3, verses 1 to 5. We get a glimpse of the hypocrisy and the heart's posture of the Pharisees here. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they, that is the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might or may accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored, fully restored. So here we are again. The Pharisees show up at the news of Jesus' ministry. They're there to find fault with him. They're not there to worship on that Sabbath day. That's not why they're there. They, they anticipated that Jesus was going to do something miraculous on the Sabbath, and that anticipation paid off because he did. He ended up healing this man and doing this to the glory of God and for the good of this man. But but I want you to notice their wicked response to this amazing and merciful miracle that Jesus performed. Think about it. Was their response that of praises to God or rejoicing over this man's restoration? Neither of those happened. Neither of those took place. Look what happened. Look at the response in verse 6. Immediately after Jesus does this great and merciful miracle, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Hmm. Now we're getting a glimpse of their hearts. They responded, rather than rejoicing, they doubled down in their sinfulness and their self-righteousness, and they sought to destroy Jesus. So in verse 6, Mark is telling us and showing us what the true heart and hypocrisy of the Pharisees look like. Think about it this way. They're there to criticize him for working on the Sabbath. And what are they doing? They're working evil in their hearts against him, the Lord of the Sabbath. You can see their wickedness by the way they actually premeditate the murder of Jesus as a result of what he's done. So they're working evil in their hearts on the Sabbath, but they're criticizing him for working good on the Sabbath. Now, As for the scribes, they're also mentioned in Mark 3. They were last mentioned here in verse 22 in Mark's gospel. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. So this is an official delegation 
of scribes coming from Jerusalem. And what are they coming to do? They're coming there to give their official judgment about Jesus' teaching and his works. And what is their official determination? Well, their official judgment is this. He is possessed by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Now, that's their official judgment. And what that judgment does is it reveals something inherently evil is going on in their hearts. It reveals the wickedness and the darkness that dwells in this whitewashed tomb of the scribe. He looks good on the outside, but inwardly he is judging the Lord of glory with wickedness, wicked motives. So that's the last time in Mark's gospel up to chapter 7 that we hear anything about the scribes and the Pharisees. So you have to keep that in mind when we come to chapter 7, because now we're coming to this conflict that we see here. And here again, we find another delegation of Pharisees and scribes coming from Jerusalem, an official delegation. And again, they're doing the same thing that the others had done previously. They're seeking to investigate Jesus, discredit him, and then ultimately, if they can, destroy him. And why are they doing that? They're doing that because of his powerful testimony in Israel. And they're doing that because of his growing popularity among the masses of Israel. They're threatened by him. His very presence and his very teachings threaten their existence. Now, when these leaders come, they come from Jerusalem. They come this time, though. This confrontation is unlike that in chapter 3. Chapter 3, you see building up of this confrontation, the way they're accusing him and judging him. But now it becomes even more intense and more serious In this confrontation that we see here in chapter 7. But before I really get into verses 1 to 5 and this accusing question here, I think that we need to first understand something about the language that's being used here by Jesus and the confrontation itself. Because Jesus is referencing something that we may not be all that familiar with other than having read it in the New Testament. But he's making reference to criticizing them for the traditions of the elders by which they are judging him. And so I want to give you a little bit of an understanding of what he is talking about here and why this was such a big deal, all right? This conflict, first of all, first of all, this conflict is not about Jesus violating the scriptures, but it is about him violating the traditions and commandments of men that the Pharisees and scribes held to as their authority. That's what's at the heart of this conflict. It's at the heart of this conflict because these religious leaders had made their traditions, understand this, this is very important to grasping where Mark's going to take us today. They, they saw these traditions as equal to and even superior to God's word. So we need to understand something about what these traditions or commandments being addressed here are talking about. And to help us in that, here's what I've done. I have begged from John MacArthur this morning. I've begged from his notes today. Because these are very insightful notes. These are very helpful for us who do not have a Jewish background to understand really what's going on when he's addressing the traditions and the commandments of men here in this text. Here's what MacArthur notes. And I'm going to read this to you because it's just it's pretty wordy, but it's important to foundationally build on. MacArthur writes, The establishment of these traditions all started years after Moses was given the law at Sinai. When some well-meaning Jews became concerned about the holiness of the law and they wanted to protect or guard the law's purity. So it starts off pretty good. So after the law was handed down, what happened was some of the leaders of the great synagogue years later, the great synagogue at Jerusalem, here's what they said. They said, 
we need to build a fence around the law. We need to make sure that the law is kept so let's put a fence around it so that if people stop at the fence, they'll never get close enough to violate this actual law. Now, the fence, we have to understand this because this is part of the context of Mark 7. The fence consisted of generation after generation of rituals and rites, right, and rules and ceremonies of all types. And these were all put in place to protect the law of God and the people of God, so they thought. But later, what we know is something tragic happened to the people of God and the law itself. Later, the Jews were taken into captivity and the law of God was lost. But after the Jews were brought back from captivity, they were, they were brought back and restored back in the land, the law of God was recovered. And we know that Ezra himself was part of this process. Ezra, the prophet, studied the law. He observed the law and he taught the law. And so Ezra, what we need to understand is Ezra became part of the first group of men known as the scribes. We like to criticize the Pharisees and scribes and, you know, be harsh toward them. But you understand they didn't start off bad. They didn't start off wrong. But understand they started off like Ezra. Ezra was a scribe. And the scribe's job was to study the law. It's real simple. Study the law and explain the law so that the people would know what the law says and avoid violating the law. They preached. They, they studied it. They explained it. Well, after Ezra's time, the people thought that's not enough. That's not enough. So in, in order to assure that the law would not be violated, here's what we need to do. We need to put up more and more and more and more barriers to protect the people and protect the pureness of the law. So here's what happened. This comes down to where we're at in Mark. A huge amount of this material developed during this time period, and it's called the tradition of the elders. It was commentaries on the law, fences built around the law. Then in 200 A.D., Rabbi Jehuda pulled all that material together. Some of it was made up of the teaching of the rabbi. Some of it was the notes of the students. Some of it was the musing of idiots. I mean, it was just a ridiculous amount of material. They brought it all together. And when this mass of material was all collected, they put it into one book. And that book was called the Mishnah. The Mishnah. And what the Mishnah did is it represented all the accumulated content of Jewish tradition. And interestingly, Pertaining to our text and this ceremonial rite of washing of the hands, right, that we see here, there was in the Mishnah, there was one whole volume just on rinsing your hands. And the reason for that was because this ritual had nothing to do with hygiene. It had to do with seeking holiness. So after this Mishnah was put together, here's what happened. though. This, is, this just testifies to the difference between any work that man does and the written word of God. And it's sufficiency. The word of God was written once and for all. It's all sufficient. But not the Mishnah. Not the traditions of the elders. What they discovered later was that the Mishnah needed clarity. It needed supplementation. So they had to write commentaries on the Mishnah. And once they did that, they called those the Gemara. The Gemara. And so here's what you have. You have the Mishnah. And then explaining the Mishnah, you have to have the Gemara. You see how complicated this begins to be? Why does Jesus say, you load people down with burdens? That's what he's talking about here. So they're, they're loading them down with all this. Literally, if you could see all this stacked together and the way they would have had a, to put it together collecting it, it would be a massive work that would take a person an entire lifetime to study. But even after the Gemara is written, 
Here's what happened. A rabbinic school at Jerusalem had to take the Mishnah and the Gemara, and they decided, you know what, to really make this functional, we've got to put them together. And that is what we now call the Talmud. The Mishnah, the Gemara, together are called the Talmud. But interestingly enough, that wasn't sufficient. So the rabbis at Babylon wrote their own Talmud, four times larger than the Jerusalem Talmud. But guess what? It needed more help. They needed more help here. So they had to write something called the Midrash. The Midrash. And the Midrash was basically a rabbinic commentary on the books of the Bible. So this just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper into traditions. This is why it's such a complicated mess by the time of Jesus. Because even in the lifetime of Jesus, they were continuing to write things like this. It was called the Tanaim, right? The Tanaim was developed during Jesus' lifetime. And it was another massive resource here by rabbinic teaching and basically about their authority. And the one, the one thing that they didn't see, they didn't understand when Jesus shows up is he never quoted from this. Now understand, all the Pharisees and all the scribes and all the rabbis of Jesus' day... They all had to quote someone who was the authority. So they went to the Tanaim or the Midrash or the whole Talmud, the Mishnah, the Gemara, and they would quote from them. But Jesus never quoted from the rabbis. He spoke out of his own authority. That baffled the people and the leaders of that day. It baffled them because all the rabbis and the scribes, like I said, quoted someone else. But they said of him, Jesus speaks like one who has authority, not like the rabbis and scribes speak. You know, when you read the New Testament, especially the Gospels, and you you read through there and you see statements like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, says Jesus. When he's saying, you have heard it said, he is speaking of the Talmud. He is speaking of the, the Mishnah, the Gemara, the Midrash, the Tanaim. He's speaking of those things. He said, but I say to you, speaking out of his own authority... And he actually spoke clearly, unlike all those other resources. This baffled the people because it testified that he was the Son of God. He was truly God, the author of Scripture itself. Now, let me show you something. I think this is important to go back to Mark. We're going to get to Mark, but let me just say this. I think it's important for you to understand how devoted the Jews were at the time of Jesus to this material and these traditions. So I'm going to read to you some quotes. The Jerusalem Talmud says this, The words of the scribes are more lovely than the words of the law. They also went on to say this, It's a greater crime to transgress the words of the school of Rabbi Hillel than the words of the Scripture. It's a greater crime to transgress Hillel than the words of the Scripture. So this is important to this context. Because by the time you you get to Jesus here, we see that everyone is caught up in these traditions. That's why I think we need to see that this is at the heart of the confrontation taking place in Mark 7. The Pharisees and the scribes were not claiming that Jesus broke the law of God here. They are accusing Jesus of violating the religious traditions. That is what is at stake. That is what the conflict is all about. Now you can go to Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The conflict all begins in... Verses 1 to 5, when the Pharisees and scribes bring forth an implicating accusation against Jesus for not following their traditions. Look again at verses 1 to 5. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come down from Jerusalem, 
they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. They were considered ceremonially unclean. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, there's an emphasis there, do not eat unless they wash. They go through this ceremonial act. They wash their hands first, holding to the tradition of the elders, not the authority of the scriptures. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders but eat with defiled hands? When they would go into the marketplace, they might bump into a Gentile. They might bump into a Samaritan. They might bump into something unclean. So they, they had to go through this ritual, this rite of washing. I mean, these people are saying to Jesus, you, you guys could have came from the marketplace today. Their hands could be defiled. So they need to wash. Why aren't they washing? Why aren't they holding to the tradition of the elders here? This is actually a thrilling moment for the Pharisees and the scribes. This is what they're hoping for. They're looking for an opportunity to criticize Jesus, and they found it here. Just imagine this scene in verses 1 to 5. The, the Pharisees are there, and imagine the evil thrill in their hearts. The scribes are there, and, and they're filled with evil thrill at being able to now accuse Jesus because they caught his disciples breaking their tradition about ritual washings. And remember, this, this washing that's taking place here, again, it's critical to them. It's critical to their religion, and it's critical to their righteousness because to, to not ceremonially wash one's hands before you eat was to eat with undefiled, unholy hands. That's how they saw that. That's what their tradition taught them. This is what their tradition taught them. Rabbi Tashi put it this way. <laughs> they, they really believed that going through these rites, these rituals, was, was bringing you closer to God, bringing you righteousness. Listen to this. Whoever has his abode in the land of Israel and eats his food with washed hands, he may rest assured that he will receive eternal life. What? He can rest assured if he washes his hands? He's going to have eternal life? Are you kidding me? I mean, what, a, what a little God they must have served. This is at the heart of this conflict. This conflict in Mark 7 it was all about their view of holiness, not hygiene. To the Pharisees and the scribes, the experts in the law, this washing was about how a person achieves or maintains holiness before God. And it was also about how one maintains your distinctness as the people of God, sets you apart from the Gentiles. Now, the people reading Mark's gospel originally probably wouldn't have grasped what this washing was. They'd be a lot like about us when we read that, like, oh, look, he's trying to tell them how to keep their hands clean so they don't get sick. They might have thought that way. They didn't have knowledge of germs the way we do, but they still, still would have thought, I mean, you eat, if your hands are dirty, you get sick. Makes sense. But they probably didn't understand what he's talking about because they're mostly Gentiles that he's writing to here. So Mark does something important here. He adds an explanation in verses 3 to 4. And he does it in the form of this parenthesis. In verses 3 and 4 we read, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And notice this, And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, and dining couches. I think Mark's trying to emphasize something in that. I think he's saying, look, there's no end to this. There's no end to this earning righteousness by your works in their mindset. 
Remember, these guys are not thinking about washing your hands for hygiene. These men thought of washing your hands to understand how you obtain holiness. And they did that. They believed that because of the tradition of the elders, because that was their authority, not the word of God. So in their minds, here's what's happening. The violation of their traditions by Jesus' disciples was serious. It could not be ignored. And since the tradition was broken by Jesus' disciples, those he trained, hence Jesus, the teacher, must be responsible for their lack of understanding or for the disregard of these traditions. So that's where a deceptive question comes from in verse 5. You can just hear the self-righteousness in this question, even in the way that things are Put together in this whole text, you can see that Jesus is emphasizing how self-righteous these people are. He's exposing them. Look again at verse 5, at this deceptive question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Now, it looks like an innocent enough question on the surface. But in reality, there's nothing more going on here than an implicating accusation. They're trying to implicate Jesus, accuse him. And they're leveling this at him to try to discredit him, discredit his holiness, discredit his teachings, and discredit his reputation among the people. So you've got to keep in mind what's going on in the context is there's a crowd of people around. So they're going to jump on this opportunity to make Jesus look bad in front of others who esteem them highly for their great standing in the temple or in the synagogue. So they're trying to discredit him publicly, discredit his holiness, his teaching his reputation. Here's the question I, I, I came to in my mind as I studied this. How will Jesus respond? How will the Son of God, how will the Son of God respond to this accusatory question here? Well, the first thing that's very obvious to all of us as we read this is Jesus doesn't start off by trying to basically justify his disciples' actions. There's no defense of his disciples' actions, and there's no condemnation of their actions either. That's important. So how does he respond? How does he respond? Well, not like the scribes and Pharisees wanted him to. Not at all. Jesus' response shocked his accusers. Because here's how he responds. He responds with a condemning revelation about their heart's condition in verses 6 to 8. Notice that. We go from the question in verse 5 to verse 6. And he said to them... Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You set up or establish the tradition of men, leaving behind the commandment of God. That's what he's saying. This is serious here. This is a very serious statement. He's directly doing something here, and again, in public view, he is condemning them for their neglect of God's word, their disregard of God's word, nullifying of God's word. He's condemning them, and what he's doing here in this way, he's exposing them publicly, and he's calling them out as religious hypocrites, pretenders, play actors. They would put on a mask at the play at that time. They called those people hypocrites. They would pretend to be somebody. They would take the mask off, put it on another, pretend to be somebody else. That's what an actor does. He says, you're religious pretenders. You're fakes. You're frauds. You'll notice something. Jesus has so much compassion for sinners of all stripes in the Gospels, but he has 
no tolerance for the religious hypocrites. His very presence not only exposes them, but it condemns them, and they know it. Now, when Jesus said this to them, quoting from Isaiah 29:13, he says this, um, this prophecy, this prophecy applies to you. This applies to you, you hypocrites. You honor me with your lips, but your heart is somewhere else. You don't worship me from the heart. It's only in this external act that you do this to impress people and to seek praise from men. In vain do you worship me. The vanity of it was this. They taught the doctrines of men as if they were the commandments of God. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This, this revelation from Jesus that Isaiah's prophecy is applied to, to them, this, this would have been to them an unthinkable statement. How dare you threaten us? How dare you condemn us? We are the righteous leaders of Israel. It was unthinkable. We know that from Mark's or Matthew's gospel that they found it massively offensive as well. And it should have been. And here's why. This was a very clear public condemnation of their hypocritical actions and their man-made traditions. He just decimated them in front of the people there in Israel at that time. He stripped out everything from under them and said, you are naked and you should be ashamed. It's not like he, he heard them ask the question and thought, well, you know, you guys, I know you mean well. I just think you're a little misguided here. You have a little misunderstanding here. That's not how he answered them. Not at all. He says to the most honored and religious leaders in Israel, you are a bunch of fakes. You are a bunch of self-righteous pretenders playing like you're worshiping God when in reality you're worshiping yourselves, seeking the praise of men. He calls their worship of God vain there in the text. Another word for empty, meaning their worship was weightless and it was worthless. And the reason it was weightless and it was worthless, it was vain, was because their worship was only lip service. Their worship was only done to impress men and for self-glorification. It was done that way because their self-righteous religious hearts, he says, are far from God. They're not concerned about God's praise. They want praise for themselves. They want to be the standard of all things good and holy that people look to for help. So earlier in Mark 3... Pharisees and the scribes came to give their official assessment of Jesus. Now, in Mark 7, the Son of God gives his official assessment of their heart's condition. He exposes them as pretenders. He's telling them here, there's, there's no act of ritual washing that can change the condition of your hearts. Nothing you can do. It's evident that the washings aren't working, right? Look at your hypocritical worship. Look at your deceptive practices, your manipulation of the word of God to prosper yourselves and your praise. I mean, they were going through these rituals outwardly, but he says of them, this is useless. It's vain. And it was vain because their hearts were defiled by their self-righteousness. It was defiled by their self-righteousness because they had left the word of God to hold fast to the words of men to justify themselves. Jesus is condemning them for this here. It's a condemning revelation. He is saying, this is blasphemous. But he doesn't stop there. Listen, Jesus is merciful beyond measure, but his judgments are beyond measure as well. He doesn't stop with just condemning them through this revelation. He goes on in his response in verses 9 to 13 and continues to respond 
to their question and continue to expose them. And he does it with an incriminating illustration, an incriminating illustration of their acts of hypocrisy and deception. Look again at that. I love verse 9. You need to grasp something here. I don't know that any man has this ability, aside from the Son of Man here. But in verse 9, you have divine sarcasm. Okay? We might think we have righteous sarcasm, but probably not. But Jesus did. This is a sarcastic statement, he says to them, to further illustrate how wicked their hearts are. And he said to them, that's, it's like, oh, I'm not through with what I just said. He went on to say this. Oh, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. Jesus set up the illustration he gives in verses 10 to 13 in verse 9. He says, you've got a fine way of rejecting God's word to establish your own. That's what he's saying. He's delivering a divine verdict about their condemnation. It is just. You've rejected God's word and replaced it with your own. He's saying that their traditions, though they appear to be righteous on the outside, they're actually evil on the inside. They're driven by self-righteous motives. Jesus is the judge of the heart. He can see what's going on in our very motives, our intentions. And he exposes them in these statements. He's saying these traditions don't do anything to make you righteous. They just expose your unrighteousness. Because by them you think you can earn God's favor. Now, Understand this. I think when you look at the history of these traditions, they may have started off well. They may have been intended to be helpful supplements that would show the Jews how to apply the law of God. But in reality, they became something that led to the attack on the word of God. See, you you can't supplement the scripture with anything. It's all sufficient. And to say you need to supplement it with outside sources is to say that it's not giving you all that you need. That God has kept something back from us here. The word of God needs help. So in reality, when we do that, we're attacking the all-sufficient word of God itself. That's what they were doing here. They were doing that because these traditions, to them, I mean, they were obviously doing these religiously, repetitively. That's all religion means, to do over and over and over. We're religious too, okay? We come here every Sunday, we come here every Wednesday, we go to prayer meeting, so forth. But they were doing this out of a rote practice to self-justify themselves. You've got to ask yourself the question this morning. Is that what you're doing today? Are you just coming here because it's Sunday, because it's Wednesday, because it's prayer meeting, and you feel a little better when you leave because you did what was right, but your heart is far from God? God is addressing you. You should be drawn into this service of worship by listening carefully and rejoicing and delighting in his truth. But they weren't. They were just doing this work rotely and to justify themselves to these rituals. And what they ended up doing, this is what happens when you try to supplement God's word with anything else. You end up supplanting God's word with everything else. That's what they did. They supplanted God's word. They set it aside. It was no longer essential for them. They set it aside, though, so they could establish their own 
form of righteousness through their traditions. And Jesus is saying that's a betrayal of God's word. You hypocrites, you vain worshipers, your hearts, they're far from God. In verses 10 through 12, we see something interesting. In verse 10, Jesus references Moses. Notice that. He references Moses right after condemning them from Isaiah. He references Moses right after condemning them from Isaiah. And he does that for the intended purpose of rebuking them. They had boldly referenced the traditions of the elders. That was their authority. So Jesus counters by taking them to the authority of the law and the prophets. So in verse 10, Jesus turns their attention to the fifth commandment, which says, Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. And then in verses 11 to 12, he drives home the incriminating evidence of their guilt of this. Notice how he does it. Do you see the contrast between verses 10 and 11? Verse 10 starts off with, Moses said... Verse 11 starts off with, but you say, hmm, you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me as Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Again, nullifying, voiding the word of God, the power and authority of the word of God. Does anybody here know what Corban means? Yeah, that's what I thought. We're not exactly familiar with this practice, this vow. It's actually used in a vow. I'm going to try to explain it to you, okay? It's important. Jesus is talking about the the act of considering your assets Corban to protect them, give them to the temple, if you will, for spiritual purposes, for God, okay? But to do that, you would have to actually deprive those who were in need. Now, the Pharisees and scribes knew that the command that Moses gave us in Exodus to honor our parents, called for more than just respecting our parents. We should respect our parents, no matter what age we are or they are. These men knew that honoring your parents, they knew that it called for support in adulthood. As a child, all you can do is respect, right? But in adulthood, you can do more. And and they, they understood that because in Israel, adult children were the primary social security program for the older adults. But... Due to this man-made tradition, they found a loophole around it. So if a parent had a financial need and went to their son and said, I need your help, he could claim, oh, oh, my my assets, my money, my finances, they are Corban, they are given to God. And according to the tradition of the elders, it could not be given to his parents, no matter what the need was. The tradition of the elders found a loophole in the law. That allowed you to vow your money to God without even giving it to the temple or for sacred purposes. You could actually keep it. You could keep it. But because you made a vow, you couldn't give your money to your parents no matter what. What they did was set aside the money according to the tradition of the elders. And they did it ultimately, most of these people did it then, to protect their own financial assets. It was an investment for them. It kept their parents from getting into their funds. They had a built-in excuse. They had an excuse from obeying the clear command of God to honor your parents. This is the wickedness of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes using their traditions to manipulate men and the word of God. So in verse 13, Jesus clearly condemns it. He condemns it and he incriminates them by saying, 
You are making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Many such things you do. The final phrase there is important because he's making it clear to us. This act of Corbin was not just an isolated incident. This was a well-known practice. Many such things besides Corbin do you do. You, you make void the word of God by this tradition. He has used an illustration to show them their guilt. He has given a revelation to condemn them, to show them how they have neglected and rejected the word of God, counted their tradition as equal or superior to it. And now he's saying, you stand guilty, condemned. Now, I am absolutely certain that the Pharisees and scribes didn't expect that answer from Jesus when they came to him in verse 5. That's not what they were looking for. That was not the answer they wanted to hear because that answer exposed them and it condemned them. So now, now because we've read through this text, now I think we can understand something more important uh, in application toward the future in the Gospel of Mark. Now we know why, from this point on in Mark, Christ's confrontations with the Pharisees and scribes continues to increase and intensify. And here's why. It does that because the light of the world has exposed the darkness and deception in their hearts. Think about it. He exposed them as hypocrites, pretenders, whitewashed tombs full of impurity, dead man's bones. He destroyed the authority of their man-made traditions and their self-righteousness here. He condemned them for rejecting God's word and supplanting it with their own traditions. And he illustrated they were guilty, clearly guilty, through this illustration of Corbin. And part of the reason that Mark's taking us through this to see this reason behind this confrontation is that we can understand that this this confrontation, this conflict will come to a greater head in Jerusalem when Jesus is crucified by these self-righteous hypocrites. Christ will be crucified by religious men who honor God with their lips, but not with their hearts. He'll be murdered by men who are more concerned about Jesus' disciples not washing their hands, more concerned about that than being amazed and rejoicing over all that Jesus has done. They're more caught up in criticizing and judging and maligning and destroying Jesus than they are being amazed by Jesus. Think about what he's done to this point. Up to this point in Mark, Jesus has forgave sin. He has healed a paralytic. He has cleansed a leper. He has restored a withered hand. He set captive a man who was possessed by demons. He healed a woman of a hemorrhage. He raised a child from the dead. And he fed 5,000 plus with five loaves and two fish. But none of these miracles amazed them. What did it do? It exposed them. Instead of amazing them, when Jesus appears, tearing down their house of self-righteous cards, they sought to destroy him. The wickedness of hypocrisy in religion. There's no end to how far it will go to protect one's self-righteousness. They sought to destroy him because their zeal for God was not according to knowledge. Here's why. They had already set aside the word of God to establish their own way of achieving righteousness before God by their own traditions. So the Apostle Paul writes about them saying this, Being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Scribes and Pharisees needed a savior, but they rejected him, crucified him. These men needed him. And I have to say, we all need him. Because I have enough of a pharisaical and scribal spirit in me to know that self-righteousness is not something just immediately that goes away when you're born again. I began to see that years ago. I remember criticizing someone, another saint, because they weren't doing things like I do them. They weren't as faithful to church. They weren't studying the word as much. They weren't doing all these certain things that I do. 
And it, it was like God turned on a light as I was reading things like this in Scripture. It's like, you know what, Randy, you're struggling with self-righteousness, just like the Pharisees and the scribes. And just like the Pharisees and scribes, we need Jesus to expose our self-righteousness. We need him to wash it away by his cleansing blood. In Mark 7, we are reminded that our sinful and self-righteous hearts, first of all, cannot be cleansed by any traditions that we do. No religious acts can do this. Baptism can't do this. Ceremonial washings can't do this. Following the commandments or traditions of men can't do this. And listen, even, even trying to cleanse ourselves by attempting to obey the law of God can't do this. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We can't undo that and remove this deep stain of sin from our lives by our now godly actions and desire to be obedient. We can't cleanse away this deep stain of sins against a holy God. But when I see the failure of these Pharisees and scribes, I am reminded that there's only one thing that the law was intended to do. It was to expose us. It's like the righteous one exposed these men. The law of God comes to expose our sin, then point us to Jesus, who is our only source of righteousness. And now, by God's grace, through faith in him, our sinful hearts can be cleansed. Cleansed simply by trusting in his life and his sacrifice. He became our substitute, and he received the punishment we deserved. And by God's grace now, our self-righteous, sinful hearts can be made clean because Jesus' righteousness has been credited to us, to our account, by trusting in him. Saints, we all know that's the only way sinners can be declared legally righteous in God's sight, justified. You can't justify yourself by your religious deeds. It will damn you. Read Galatians. Trying to perfect what God has done already by doing these acts of Outward observances, you can't do that. We can't do that, but Jesus did it for us. Jesus alone was obedient to God's commands from the heart in our place. He alone fulfilled all of God's righteous requirements from the heart for the unrighteous. And he did that, and by him doing that, he is the end of law for righteousness to everyone who trusts in him. And if you confess your guilt and your trust in his righteousness alone, here's what you can hope in. You have assurance that you will be able to stand in God's holy presence one day, made ceremonially, internally, externally, forever clean by not the washings of man, but the washing of the blood of the lamb. That is the good news for self-righteous sinners like ourselves. He is continuing to sanctify us. And his word exposes ugly, self-righteous intentions in our heart so that we can look to him to wash them away and rest once again in the blood of Christ, our righteousness. So let's give thanks to him today for that and for Mark 7. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word is all sufficient. The law points us to the glorious Savior who came to fulfill it in our place We now rejoice in that union with him, and through him we are counted righteous in your sight. And through him we find rest from the works of our flesh. We rest in his works alone to bring us before you one day eternally clean, cloaked in the blood-soaked righteousness of Christ. We pray that you would help us to continue to examine our own hearts as we look at the scribes and the Pharisees. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves and where we need to repent. 
protect us from legalistic tendencies in our flesh and give us a longing to look to Christ and to him alone for all righteousness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.